Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the Sculpies podcast, where we talk all things medicine and science with your host, Timothy Jew. So I am currently sick right now. Uh, I was debating whether to record this podcast. I was trying to prolong it as much as possible because I thought that the quality of my speaking would go down significantly. But um, I just need to get these things out. I, I can't do this. I can't keep these all. I just need to do it. Send it, as they say. But anyway. A quick little bit of vulnerability before we start this podcast. I'm currently applying for medical school, and as of today, February 16th, 2022, I've been rejected from seven medical schools, one has put me on hold, and the rest, a total of eight, have not replied at all. Now, it might be COVID, it might be a lot of things, but I've yet to get an interview invitation, and the nerves are definitely settling in. Despite all that, in the meantime, I've just been trying to have the time of my life, learning about electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, computer science, bioinformatics, spending time with friends and family, reading research papers galore, and I'm slowly but surely learning to let it go. Constantly reminding myself that the universe doesn't owe me anything, and sometimes preparation isn't meant with opportunity. I mean, I could be bitter like a lemon, or a Brussels sprout, those things are literally like baby fart cabbages to me. Or I could try and make some Brussels sprout scented lemonade. I could try to do something with it. So, in case anyone listens to this, I hope this helps and I hope you're not comparing yourself to all the Redditors who are complaining about only getting accepted into 10 medical schools this cycle. And yeah, just know that we're all in it together. Anyway, in this podcast, we have guest speaker, MCAT tutor, and MCAT curriculum developer, Chris. We'll go over the list of happy little accidents that led Chris on his journey of developing an MCAT curriculum, the demographic discrepancies that seem to shift our student bodies and our policies, the conventional routes to medicine, and all the logistics of the application process, as well as much more. Also, just in reference to the first episode, I told you that we would all eventually get to the importance of diversity and representation. Please don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, share, and all that good stuff. It really helps the algorithm and we'll get the information out quicker. Regardless, hope you all enjoy. For today's podcast, we have Chris, a mentor and friend. Now, along my own pursuit of medicine, I literally had no idea what I was doing, and I really felt like a fish out of water. I just personally loved learning the science and knew that being a part of medicine was my dream vocation, but I never really knew how to get there. Eventually, I sharpened up and decided to invest in a tutor, which happened to be Chris. He initially had me take the MCAT cold, where I scored a 512 on the first practice exam I took, and at that point, it seemed that perhaps I really didn't need an MCAT tutor, but I definitely needed a guide for the whole medical school application process, which Chris offered to be. Chris has shown time and time again an amazing level of empathy and care in his approach to communication and education. He's helped me through the whole application process, whether it was my personal statement, my works and activities, my secondaries, you name it. Upon hearing that Chris was investing his time to create an inexpensive MCAT curriculum for students that couldn't afford the hefty price tags, I had to ask him to be a part of the podcast where he graciously agreed. Now, with that intro out of the way, Chris, what has been your own process through medicine? And how would you describe yourself? Yeah, so my name's Chris, and just kind of thinking about, you know, where did I start with all of this stuff? So I ended up getting my EMT 
over the summer after I had graduated and started working. And I honestly just felt like I just fell in love with medicine. And I always just felt so frustrated by my lack of ability to help my patients. I felt like either I was just transporting people or there are all of these things that I knew about from listening to podcasts or just doing research on my own that I couldn't do. And I was just super bummed about it. And that kind of kicked off my whole sort of journey towards pursuing medicine. And so with that, I kind of had to go back to school and take the MCAT. But I had started to get involved with where I was working as an EMT with education and running some of the continuing education for the county. And I had gotten really great responses about how, like, oh my gosh, I learned so much. It was so interactive. I felt like I could stay awake instead of falling asleep during this. And I ended up applying for an MCAT tutoring job because I was like, wow, this is like really, really fun. I did well enough on the MCAT to be able to be an MCAT tutor. And honestly, I just kind of fell in love with it. And I've been doing that for about two and a half years, maybe a little bit longer now. And throughout that process, I sort of have started with a company, kind of started my own business. And now I'm sort of working on my own project. And one of my big goals is to create some free resources for students who either can't afford it or who are underrepresented in medicine, although both of those tend to go together. Over time, like as I started um, charging more and more and more, just as I got more experience, it was crazy to me to see how stark the difference was in my students. It went from being really diverse to being like a very small subset of students, which I thought was just kind of crazy. And that's kind of where my sort of business idea came from. And that's kind of, that's kind of me. Quite a lot to unpack there. First of all, I think it's so cool when people don't just point out the flaws in their respective fields, but they actually start to move towards a solution. Obviously, us undergraduates and pre-med slash medical students might not be the most accredited individuals and might not have a diverse enough tool set to just quote unquote, make the world a better place. But in the few areas where we can offer help, I think it's totally valid to try. So, Chris charges more for his service, and with that, he notices that the demographics of his clientele are now homogenizing what to do. He realizes that he has a knack for teaching and learning, so he takes up some coding and chooses to use his strength to create his own accessible MCAT material. Cool. I guess one of the questions that I'd like to ask you is, have you seen like recurring motif or pattern with certain students where you're like, I think that they're okay, as opposed to we're gonna have to do more work. Yeah, I think one of the things that always sticks out to me is how easily people are able to get past the complexity of the language. I think a lot of people I see um, really struggle with the way that the passages are worded or the way that the questions are worded. And you know, in fancier terms, they'd call this like saliency. Like, can you figure out what the most salient or important factor is in a question? And I think that's one of the things that sticks out most to me as to whether or not somebody is going to be able to succeed. Usually people who are not able to see past the sort of complexity really struggle, even if they know the content well. And I think kind of vice versa, even if people who understand what the question is asking don't necessarily know the content as well, I find that those people tend to do pretty well, even though they may not know as much as the people who don't. And as an MCAT tutor myself, I've also seen this pattern show up especially in my ESL students or English as second language students. Of course, a question comes to mind. Why should or is language such an important factor on the MCATs? Should it be? Well, the way I always thought about it was that, of course, 
English is the medium by which we engage the material on the MCATs. So, it would make sense that the effect of being uncomfortable with the language would compound, not only over the span of the MCATs, but also over your whole medical school process. Every question, every prompt, every lesson, saturated with dense and terminology jumbled English. Now, would this and should this be considered a test bias? Well, to try and get a clearer perspective, I decided to do some more research and eventually found my way to an article by the Academic Medicine Journal of the Association of American Medical Colleges. Goodness gracious, I need to take a breath after that one. Anyway, the article is called Do Racial and Ethnic Group Differences in Performance on the MCAT Exam Reflect Test Bias? And boy, is there a lot of information to be had. So, the article states that test bias arises, and I quote, when deficiencies in a test itself or the manner in which it is used result in different meanings for scores earned by members of different identifiable subgroups. After more reading, talking about underprediction, bias sensitivity, and etc., we essentially see that the AAMC really does try and eliminate the bias by removing any unnecessary content that would confer an advantage to a subgroup relative to others. For instance, if the test randomly started talking about American football and required that you know some weird tangential bit of information in order to solve the question, this would immediately exclude other test takers and to their credit, they really try and avoid that. The AAMC also states that all the material is presented to a group of individuals with quote-unquote diverse backgrounds. And should the material pass that screening, which apparently are a select few, it will then be considered as material for the exam. More questions arise though from that statement. What do you mean by diverse backgrounds? Does this also take into account socioeconomic factors? Are these individuals that have already met the filter? Are they doctors? Do they come from a lineage of doctors? So many questions. Now, I don't have any qualms with AAMC, and I appreciate their effort, but how do you confidently get rid of this barrier for medical students that are not native speakers, are from low socioeconomic households, are of certain minority groups, and are first-generation medical school applicants, just to name a few? Well, closing out the article, it then states that although there are statistically significant discrepancies in scores between subgroups, the subgroups being white, black, and Latino, the percentage of students that get accepted into medical school are not statistically different between subgroups. And I think all of this really points out the multifaceted and holistic approach to the overall application process and the AAMC's emphasis on diversity within their student body. So for anyone out there that might think their chances of getting into medical school are eliminated because of their CAR score or their overall MCAT score, just take a breather and know that you might still have a chance. Now, this also brings up a very touchy topic about race. Specifically, I'm going to bring up Asian Americans and this concept of meritocracy and reverse discrimination. I happen to be Korean American, but I will say that I don't speak for the, any community. Uh, this is just my own words. So feel free to disagree with me in the comments or the ratings for the podcast. But I am personally 100% for inclusion and diversity, and I have some evidence to back that up. First and foremost, the patients should be our utmost priority. 
and as a result, we need a diverse cast of healthcare workers. There's been a long history of mistrust between minority groups in the public health service. And honestly, there's plenty of reason for that mistrust. As recently as 1932, the Tuskegee syphilis study was conducted by the public health service of Macon County, Alabama, where 600 black males, most of them illiterate farmland workers, were intentionally withheld from penicillin to treat their syphilis. They were lied to and not told the true reason of the study, and there were no records of their consent to be a part of the study. You might be like, okay, well, that's 1932, but even as recent as December 2020, there has been the case with Dr. Susan Moore, a black physician who was admitted to Indiana University Hospital where, after having to beg for remdesivir and a CT scan and being subjected to racial bias after asking for pain relief medicine for her neck, she ended up passing from COVID. And although the Indiana University Health Panel ultimately concluded that her death was not due to the medical management and technical care, they did state that there was a, and I quote, lack of empathy and compassion in the care she received. Here's a clip of Dr. Moore's own words. This is the second worst day here at IU North. <laughs> Yesterday, Dr. Bannock wanted to send me home. You know, at that time, I'd only received two treatments of the remdesivir. He said, ah, you don't need it. You're not even short of breath. I said, yes, I am. And I don't feel comfortable giving you any more narcotics. I was in so much pain from my neck. My neck hurt so bad. I was crushed. He made me feel like I was a drug addict. And he knew I was a physician. I was hurting. And if they're not going to treat me here properly, send me to another hospital. I put forward and I maintain. If I was white, I wouldn't have to go through that. This is how black people get killed. When you send them home and they don't know how to fight for themselves. I had to talk to somebody, maybe the media, somebody, to let people know how I'm being treated up in this place. Although I would love to state that I'm completely removed from racial biases myself, that's not the point here. The fact is, the more diversified our healthcare, the greater reach we have as physicians to help people of all kinds, and that, to me, is priceless. I've even had my own experience with this when I admitted my friend to the emergency room after an alarming and stressful set of events. As soon as my friend was admitted, they were referred to by racist epithets from security guards. The security guards then put his name down as John Doe, and that was simply because they said that his name sounded too foreign. And ultimately, in a testing time where the safety of my friend seemed to be at risk, the bigotry and lack of empathy ultimately made a stressful situation worse. But, aside from that, let's go even further. Looking at the statistics that I pulled from ShamassianConsulting.com, also shout out to Dr. Sharag Shamassian, we noticed that there are a total of 13,424 applicants that are Asian American, with 5,352 being accepted, roughly equating to a 40% acceptance rate. We have 25,662 that are white, with 10,029 being accepted, roughly 39%, 6,169 that are black, with 2,200 being accepted, roughly 36%, 
percent and 4,037 that are Latino with 1,646 being accepted, roughly 41 percent. All of that to say that all of these are in the rough ballpark of each other. And still, we see that the lowest acceptance is for that of black applicants. And of course, the topic is a lot more complex than just the percentage of accepted students. It also deals with different average test scores and socioeconomic status. But that does not change the fact that tragic events, such as the case with Dr. Susan Moore, should try and be prevented at all costs. Even if you can't prove that it was based on racial discrimination, the fact that many people, like Dr. Susan Moore, have to even deal with any type of mistrust or thoughts of unfair treatment during a time where they're in need of human empathy should be something we all strive to change, especially in any field that aims to help people. Now, speaking of helping people, after talking about the need for greater diversity in healthcare, I decided to ask Chris about some advice he readily provides to his students so they can start their first steps towards becoming physicians. If you had to give like a general bit of advice that most likely would help, what would that advice be, I guess? I would recommend people put a lot of structure around the way that they solve problems. So one of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of people will just like look at a problem and then start approaching it, but there's not usually like a consistent way that they have for approaching it. So that's usually what I teach is let's sort of break these problems down. And so for me, I'm looking at kind of following four steps and it doesn't mean that we're always going to be stuck following those four steps, but at least when you start, I think it's really important. So I usually have people trying to find like what content area is this question asking about? Obviously it doesn't really work in cars. It's kind of a whole other ball game. Um, and then from there thinking about what in this question stem like leads you to somewhere in the passage. I call it a keyword. It's usually something that is not super content oriented. It could be, you know, XYZ protein, Sonic the Hedgehog protein. Um, and kind of from there, using those two pieces of information to kind of triangulate or find some piece of information in the passage. And those are kind of the first three steps is you know, you're finding that content, you're finding that keyword, and you're finding where the two overlap in the passage and then kind of going from there onto solving that particular problem. And I kind of think of it as solving in a loop, right? So you, your loop sort of starts at your question, goes to the passage, and then how does that passage information loop you back around to an answer choice? And so that's what I've found to be really effective when people are struggling more with that kind of strategy side and seeing through the complexity of the whole question. After getting like a sample size, have you found like, oh, this is probably the area where most kids struggle with? I mean, I think CARS is probably where most people struggle. And just a heads up, CARS stands for the Critical Analysis and Reasoning section of the MCATs. And I think that it's a little bit challenging because of how people tend to think about evaluating CARS mm. as a section. A lot of people are really hung up on the number and not the percentile. And so I think that you have to appreciate that your CARS score is probably going to be lower. And that actually right. corresponds to a higher percentile. So I think a lot of people think they're doing worse. But, you know, 125 is supposed to be 50th percentile in all the sections. It's not. It's like 60. Right. I, I'm forgetting, but I think it's like 63rd percentile in cars. And so I think that's the section that everybody struggles with. And I think kind of going into why is that there's not a lot of really good advice out there for cars, to be honest. A lot of it is just like practice more. But if you practice you know, 10, if you practice 10 free throws every single day with absolutely awful form, you're going to end up with 
awful form when you do free throws and not a lot of success. And I think that's what I see a lot of my students kind of do with cars is they kind of just bang their head against these passages and kind of keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. I think the big reason I see that is there's just so many gimmicky things out there in a lot of the big test prep companies like, oh, you know, skip around and find what passages are easy or hard. I mean, I'm terrible at predicting that. And then we end up wasting a lot of time. Or, you know, you aren't going to be able to finish the entire section and that's okay because you just need to literally quote unquote kill the ones that you do do. And I'm like, as somebody who's done well in cars and has met with a lot of people who have done well in cars, like that's just not how you approach that section. Ah, cars. The real problem child of the MCATs. To explain the format for those not in the loop, the critical analysis and reasoning section consists of passages that can have a wide variety of topics to cover, such as religion, philosophy, art, music, finances, you name it. And, similar to my own MCAT tutoring experiences, it seems that Cars is not only the most consistent offender for the lowest score, but also the most stubborn when it comes to improving said score. So, what to do? Well, I read an article titled, A Novel Approach to Preparing Students for the Medical College Admission Test, Passage-Centered Learning, or PCL, and it does a little deep dive on the potential benefits of integrating passage-centered learning in the classroom setting, which is all good and fun, but what about the students that are currently in the fight and don't have time for professors to revamp the curriculum? This situation calls for an old friend. Let's do some Reddit research. Now, this is a segment with unaccredited research, so listen with discretion. But as I said, I went on Reddit, searched cars, and the first thing that showed up was a post by Reddit user Bright Alvey on the MCAT subreddit saying, is cars just a lost cause for some? Under the post, they elaborate that they've been doing two to three passages every day and they are just not getting any better no improvement. And just stealing a direct quote, I'm starting to lose hope. Some people seem to click with it and others just don't. My other sections have improved a ton and now my car score is the only thing keeping me from my goal score. Are there any suggestions from the people who have improved when they weren't a natural at cars to begin with? I am sorry, Bright Alvy, and I totally feel for you. One of the things that I always instructed my students to do was add some character and have fun with it to try and read the passages with tone. And Reddit user IcyZanakan also seemed to find the strategy very helpful, stating that they had to find tone and read the passage in an extremely exaggerated, stereotypical version of that tone that kept them entertained. Also, Reddit user C of the Leaf commented that one of their main troubles was constantly using different techniques and not letting any one technique mature. Grass sometimes isn't greener on the other side. And sometimes it's not green at all if you're colorblind. Anyway, another suggestion that I consistently talk about with my students is blocking and finding the big point of each paragraph as well as of the whole passage, which was a technique that Chris actually helped me hone. In general, cars is a difficult section, but it is improvable. So just hit the books. We'll actually just read them. And don't be discouraged if the strategy you're employing doesn't work straight away. It takes a few trips to the gym sometimes. Could you like justify why these people are making us suffer through this? <laughs> I don't think I can actually. I think the, oh. I think, the, you know, not a very pop, maybe not what the AAMC wants to hear, but I actually think that cars is sort of a problem for being in this particular exam. Like if you look at some of the research, some kind of interested in this stuff, what we see is that cars predicts how well people do on the board exams. But 
that doesn't surprise me. The board exams are another standardized test. So one standardized test predicts how another person is going to do right. on another standardized test. But does the board exam actually tell us how well somebody's going to do as a position? And the answer is probably no. Right. That test was designed as a minimal competency. Like you pass it, and that means that you are safe to practice and move on to the next step of your training. Mm -hmm. And so I actually think the cars section is kind of a big issue because all it tells us is that you can pass your board exams, which obviously medical schools care about because it factors into their rankings and whether or not people will choose to apply to those schools. But it's also probably the most biased one as well. Like if we look into the data, we see that underrepresented minorities do the worst in cars. And that's something that I've personally experienced too. Why do I think they put it in there in the first place? I think the idea is that it's supposed to be having an ability to critically analyze and look at and deconstruct language and have some skepticism around that. But I wonder, like, why doesn't the bio-biochem section do that? Why doesn't the chem -phys section do that? All of those other sections have that element of critical reasoning. I think this is probably a holdover of just how we administer standardized exams is they have a verbal section. So this one has a verbal section. The old MCAT had a verbal section. The GRE has a verbal section, the ACT, the SAT. And so I don't necessarily think there's a great answer. I wish I had a better answer, but. And I think to some degree, the MCAT is just a very constructed exam. I, I think it's very convenient for admissions staff to have this exam. I also just sort of wonder like, why? Like, why do we have this exam? It doesn't really match with what you'll be doing as a physician. And it's just kind of one of those hoops that unfortunately we have to jump through. Now, I really like it because I think it's a big puzzle. But right. then again, I don't have anything writing on it, whereas other students do. And so I think that's just kind of one of the challenging elements of the MCAT is honestly like the mental piece of saying this is something that maybe doesn't necessarily kind of say like I will be a good doctor, I will not be a good doctor, even though I see tons of students sort of sort of peg themselves into like I'm a 505, I'm gonna be a terrible doctor or whatever, um, right. or I'll never get in. I think there's just so much more to being a physician than this kind of very constructed standardized exam. So after peering into some of the research, I found a paper stating that there was some moderate to weak correlation between MCAT scores and medical school performance, but the date this paper was published was way back in 2015. I mean, I set out for Google searching people, not archaeology, so I did a little more digging and unfortunately, I couldn't really find any up-to-date research on the topic, but I did find a neat presentation called comparing the predictive validity of the MCAT and GAMSAT or graduate medical school admission test for performance in graduate entry medical school by Dr. Maverneen Casey. And this went over eight separate research papers on the topics dating from 1989 to 2015. In summary, it seemed that there was a statistically significant correlation between the MCAT verbal section, physical sciences, and biological sciences with that of preclinical GPA, clinical GPA, and program GPA. But there was no significant correlation between clinical skills exam scores. The highest correlation was, unsurprisingly, in the biological sciences, followed by the verbal section and ending off with the physical science section. So, there may be a valid point for keeping a critical analysis and reasoning section on the MCAT. Obviously, a valid reason for keeping the biological sciences section. And maybe we toss the physical science section. Sad days, because the physics and general chemistry section was my favorite section. But... 
Of course, it's not that simple, and perhaps explaining the placement of these sections in a more concrete manner might help the whole situation out a lot, because it really does seem like an unnecessary mental obstacle for students to go through doubt while they're already tackling a pretty hard test. I guess my words don't really matter with regards to this particular issue, so maybe we could have an AAMC member or MCAT test curriculum person come on the podcast one day. That'd be super cool. You know, I'm kind of into looking at a lot of this stuff and trying to read some of the research. And if you just look at the data, I think the I think the average household income of someone who's going into medical school is about $100,000. A median household income of $100,000? Dude, that is so much. That's like 11,918 Chipotle burritos after tax and rounded down. What in the world? Which is crazy, which is crazy, right? Like, it's so biased towards higher income individuals and we are constantly wondering like, why isn't it more diverse? And we look at these surveys and I was really shocked to look at these surveys and they were they surveyed some people who were doing admissions as to why don't you have more people who are URM in your programs or underrepresented minorities? And one of the big things that they had stated was the MCAT. It was like 90% of schools said that it was MCAT scores. But if you looked at the other two ones, it was kind of appalling, at least to me. One was lack of positive role models and lack of other URM staff. And I just thought to myself, like, why does it matter if you have staff, right? Like, you can still accept people who are URM without having the staff that necessarily like matches that demographic like that's how you kind of start to solve that particular problem and I was just sort of really shocked by that uh, and I, there's not a whole lot I can do about those other two factors but the one thing that I can do is kind of help work with the MCAT and that's actually like the whole reason I sort of started my business and my whole online thing is I was actually just kind of disappointed that as I was starting to increase my rate that I lost those students. I really loved connecting with a lot of those students and helping them out and seeing them do really well when they had the proper resources. And I know that as I move forward, like I'm not going to be able to just like continue to tutor all people because I have a limited amount of time. And so I thought, well, I could create a course. And that's kind of where that idea of this course came from was really noticing that there's a there's a really big lack of affordable resources that are high quality especially now we have Khan Academy which is the one free resource is going to be taken down as they move on to sort of serving their like K12 which is their sort of focus it's being saved but it's not quite the same and there's not really a big replacement you know you look out and you look at some of these big prep companies Princeton Review doesn't offer any discounts Blueprint is got a discount, but it still ends up being in the hundreds or a thousand dollar range, which is still, I think, just way, way too expensive for a lot of my students. And I actually think that's one of the biggest barriers is just like, what resources do you have access to? And I think that I'm working with a student right now who really can't afford, honestly, anything. Like they're on the fee assistance program plan. And I, I do a lot of sliding scale when I can, or just some free tutoring. And that's what we've been doing. But it's crazy to me that, you know, going out and trying to buy a subscription to a QBank, which might be $200, is just completely out of their reach. And that's just crazy to me because it's like, oh, well, how much is the MCAT a test of socioeconomic status and how much money you have rather than just like your aptitude or ability to be a physician? Goodness gracious, Chris. 
You go. Is this really a test of your ability to become a doctor, or is it a test of socioeconomic status? And after that great, well-spoken answer from Chris, we did it again. A Timmy tangent. To set context, I was studying for the MCATs at the time of starting this podcast, and I took every opportunity to bring up topics that I didn't feel comfortable with. So, as I was talking to Chris, I eventually brought up the fundamental attribution error, which is the socio-psychological condition where we naturally downplay environmental factors and blame personal slash character defects. And then I eventually found myself very curious about the logistics behind developing the MCAT curriculum. So I decided to ask about that. What have you found was most interesting of like, oh my goodness, this was a lot more difficult than I thought it'd be. Yeah, yeah so absolutely. Um, and I can touch on a couple other things and I'll answer that kind of question. It, it's just really interesting because it kind of made me think about a, a personal experience of I, I was at an interview. We were asked to kind of rate the percentage to which something contributed to success. And it was environment, um, yourself, and also the professors. We had kind of unveiled all of our percentages. And I was like, environment, 40%. Everybody had it as like 10%. And it's just crazy to me that I think there's a there's a large sort of prevailing idea that the reason, like you're talking about with the fundamental attribution error, that a lot of people succeed or fail because they do or don't try. And I think there's just not a lot of respect for kind of the environment and the way that the environment impacts what's going on. Uh, I think I just have sort of an appreciation. I'm married to a social worker who that's kind of their focus. They work in a jail. and thinking about how there's a lot of unmet needs, right? Like housing, like, okay, yeah, this person might be coming back to jail because they're doing drugs to cope with their situation because they don't have a house. We don't have housing for them. And to try and like think that the MCAT and medical school admissions is really any different just is kind of crazy to me personally thinking about that. I guess this just seems like a reminder to always try and walk a mile in someone's shoes, especially if they got some Air Jordans on. No, but for real, I think many pre-med slash medical students can really get on that high horse and start losing that much needed empathy. If you're gonna treat humans, you should be human. And I think there's like a lot of worry or talk about like jobs being automated. In my humble opinion, I think that the healthcare field should be one of those that aren't automated simply because I want to work in that field <laughs> and I don't want to get obsolete. But maybe there is no statistically significant figure that says if you feel better, you will do better. Right. But at least you feel better. And at least you feel comforted by human cuddling and what have you. Yeah, and I think, I think that kind of plays out in seeing that people who have similar demographic characteristics in common with their physicians tend to have better care, right? I think that that probably does play out in terms of just the statistics, maybe not that exactly, because I don't think we're quite at that point where we are automating. I see a role for incorporating it into it and having kind of a hybrid model where we have a lot of technology backing us up so that we have sort of peripheral brains and we can let computers and technology do what they're really good at and then let humans really focus on that human element and do what they're good at, which is sort of connecting with other people. Um, yeah. But then kind of to get back to that question that you asked about what have I found challenging? Mm -hmm. I think I found challenging is just such a big project. It's, it's huge. Yeah. I, I'm actually, I volunteer at a food pantry nearby and I finally volunteer with one of the people who was one of the um, editors on the Kaplan books. Yeah, just like random, random chance. So we just like talk and 
you know, I was talking and he was saying that, you know, the team for making the Kaplan resources is in like the 50 plus people. I mean, I'm one person. I'm one person, right. <laughs> two now, um, <laughs> making this course. And so I think that it's just the sheer enormity of the work that just kind of is been really challenging and also just learning a lot of really like new technology like i mm. am trying to figure out how to do screen capture and not have it look absolutely horrible because my computer right. is like 10 years old or how do i do um just all of these different pieces and incorporate it and it's just a little bit challenging for me to kind of get the new tech but it's also really fun like i'm like oh like i didn't know i could do that that's really neat or oh like that's a cool automation that i can do and so i've also just been kind of embracing the opportunity to learn a bunch of new skills that honestly i would never have been exposed to like building a wordpress website like not what i ever thought i would do or learning how to code in latex so that my you know formulas look okay or drawing and trying to figure out how to make things into vector images and really having a hard time but it's been fun and really neat and i just don't think i would have been exposed to it if i hadn't sort of started along this project even though it is a challenge of it have you ever had a moment with this undertaking where you're like i oh my goodness i can't do this or like maybe i went a little in over my head oh yeah i think multiple times i think most recently it was it's been this week like i haven't worked on the project like at all this week i was like i just need a break i'm like oh my gosh like it's so much material i i start to look through what i've made and i'm like wow there's a lot there and then i look at the list of things it's all done and i'm like never mind never mind like <laughs> there's a lot there but it's really nothing i think the biggest setback that i'm having right now is honestly just a technology one where hmm. the format of the questions doesn't match the mcat and to me that's a really big problem because if I'm going to start doing strategy lessons or I'm going to start sort of doing some recordings, I don't think it makes sense to do it without the MCAT format. And that's just been a real challenge because it's not something that I can solve myself. Like it is a coding thing and I do not know how to code and make it look all fancy. And so that's been like my biggest setback and I'm trying to work through it and waiting to hear back from some companies on what I can do. but. I don't know if I can even afford that. So I've just got to kind of push through and figure out how it's all going to work out. So that's probably been my most recent setback. And so you would say like taking that break has helped you though, being able to step back a little and just take a breath. Take that break. And then I also just start thinking about, okay, so I can't do that, right? Like that's not something that I can solve and that's fine, but what can I do? And that's, I think where I start to focus is what's one small thing that I can do. Okay, cool. So I can still make some of the illustrations for more of the science stuff, or I can still write that article or create that resource that's gonna be downloadable. Or for cars, I can go and I can get a big collection of articles that I'm eventually gonna use. Maybe I'm not gonna write questions because it doesn't make sense because I don't have that platform, but I just start to think about like, what are, what are the small things that I can do rather than thinking about what I can't? One thing that I wanted to ask you about, since you are an educator, mm -hmm. um, have you found it easy to dissociate yourself from your student's success or have you found yourself very caught up in that? I think when I first started, I was very sort of attached to my student's success and it felt like, like if my students aren't successful, I'm not successful. And that mm -hmm. was really, really challenging because I think at some point in time I had to realize like, 
I can give people all the resources and all the guidance, but I'm not like the person who's ultimately responsible for that individual's success. I'm a, I'm a part of it. And I'm going to do my darndest to make sure that that person is successful and help them in whatever ways I can. But I think at the end of the day, for me, I started to realize like it isn't up to me to succeed. Mm. And like on the actual exam, um, because I am not there studying, right? I might meet with somebody depending on sort of how it's working out as often as three times a week or as little as once a month. And if I'm meeting with somebody even three times a week, like, there's so much time that I am sort of not there. And I do my very best to help people improve and break it down. And I think now I'm sort of at a point where I'm like, darn, like, okay, we're not succeeding. What can we do? Rather than being like, oh my gosh, I failed this student. Right. I don't think it's like helpful for me and I don't necessarily think it's helpful for my students either. And then also like being like, wow, like they did so well. That's awesome that I got to be a part of that journey. Whereas before I'd look, I'd be like, look at me, look at how awesome I did. I did because that student did so well. And so I think just appreciating that there's another person and it's more of a collaboration and the co-creation of success rather than me. And honestly, my students are doing most of the work. Like Props right. to them. Could you talk about the application process for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the application process as a whole has sort of three parts, if you will, if you want to think of it that way. You have a primary application, which is a centralized application. That's called the AMCAS. And then you have secondary applications, which are going to come individually from schools. And then you have interviews, waitlist, rejection, acceptance. So sort of getting a final decision from there. And so I see those as kind of the three parts, and those are the three steps. So for the primary application, this is where you're going to put in a lot more of your general information, and it's got a lot of pieces to it. You enter all your transcripts. It's kind of boring. It's just data entry. And then in addition to that, you're also going to enter your letters of recommendation. So you'll kind of pick who you want to speak to your particular strengths. And usually you're looking at picking at least a science professor or two and some other stuff. And then from there, you have a personal statement, which is basically where you answer the question, why medicine? And then you have works and activities. And in the works and activities section, you're going to give some descriptions and you also pick some most meaningful ones and you sort of describe what's most meaningful about it. And so that's kind of the primary application that usually opens up to start filling it out at about the beginning of May. And then you can actually submit it because it has to be verified because somebody has to go through and make sure that whatever transcripts you put in and the transcripts you submitted from your school, they match. And then they're going to calculate a GPA on the basis of that information. They're going to automatically input your MCAT scores if you've already finished your MCAT. And once that process is over, your application, depending on when it happened, is going to sit in a pile and not do anything hmm. until they start releasing applications to school. Now. I don't know the exact date because this last year it was July 10th, but that got pushed out because of COVID. So basically your applications just sit in a pile and then on July 10th or whatever date that happens to be, they all get sent out. They all get sent out and they go to the schools and the schools will receive them. And depending on the school, you're going to start getting secondaries back. So some schools will actually screen. That's the small majority or small minority, which is basically where they'll look at the your application and say, oh, this is somebody we think would be a good fit or Sometimes it'll just be on stats, like, nope, didn't meet the GPA cutoff, you don't get a secondary. Most schools just blast out secondaries. Mm. And you get them all. And the prompts for these, just a bunch of essay writing, really do vary from, geez, like, 
explain a challenge that you've overcome, why our school, what makes you diverse, what have you learned from interacting with diverse things, like, um, you know, talk about an experience of leadership or teaching, and you kind of go from, from there, and you answer them, and you submit them, and then you sit and you wait, honestly, just wait. And then you'll hear back about an interview, um, or not. A lot of times, you just sort of sit, you just sit there waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting until... Honestly, it could be months and months and months, and they finally make decisions, and it's like rejections. Or you'll get an interview, and because it's rolling, it could be at any point in time. It could be any point in time from about August at the very earliest through March, maybe April for some schools at the very, very latest. Oh, interview. ¿Por qué quieres que sufra? Anyway, so to set context for what Chris is about to say. Chris actually helped me with my personal statement, and at the time of recording our podcast episode, I had not finished yet. But with what I did have, I wrote about how my pursuit of attributing meaning to my art ultimately led me to realize my passion of medicine. So, Chris, what do you look for in personal statements? Like, what's that mm. spark for medicine? Because I think that it's a hard job. It's a really hard job. It's a hard training, and... You want to make sure that it's something that you're going to be able to keep coming back to. And that's often what I'm trying to find is what is your spark for medicine and how can we display that in the personal statement and just throughout your whole application. And it sounds like you really found sort of that spark of, you know, creativity and connecting that with caring for other people or community and how that kind of deepens your sort of purpose or understanding of your place in the world and what you want to do. And so that's often, I think, what I'm really looking for is like that, that kind of like why connected with that spark of like, how did you know and telling that story? Because mm. I think stories are just so much more memorable when it comes to kind of telling about yourself and having it be more memorable. And it sounds like you really have that. Maybe it's just a matter of sort of sculpting the language. Yeah. But I think that that's actually the easier part. I think the harder part is sort of really sitting down and saying, like, what is that spark that has really driven me towards this? And I think also one of the things that I just see is kind of a common mistake that a lot of people make, I think because they're trying to, like, sound good for admissions committees, is they talk about all these things about, you know, I'm so smart or I'm so all of these things. And when we think about, like, what is medicine, it's really about caring for other people. And that's always one of those things that I kind of try and ask some of my students is, you know, is that something that you're really invested in doing? Because if it is, like, I want you to talk about that in your personal statement, which it sounds like you kind of have connected, right? Having that idea of, you know, all this creativity, it was, I was cool, I was making money, but then I designed this project for this person that was like, wow, like I can really help people and that's really neat. And I think kind of building on that is something that I see a lot of students sort of shy away for in favor of talking about, I'm so compassionate, I'm so empathetic, I'm so all of these things, um, rather than showing like, I really care about other people. And in showing that you really care, you can get a sense of this person has compassion, this person is empathetic. And I think what I often come back to it is, you know, why? And and a lot of people will say, like, that's not very helpful. Um, and I think you can trace, you can continue to trace, like, the why. Like, okay, so mm -hmm. people said that you, um, you should sell your art. 
they probably told you that because you thought it was good but why did you choose to sell that stuff right like why mm. did you choose to sell that that's a really cool thing i i, I read your personal statement mm -hmm. and yours is very like it's, it's very direct. slap in the face it's yeah. like this is why and you're like wow and i think initially that intimidated me because i was like that's not how i write and then you immediately yeah. said i know it's very straightforward if it's not how you write don't write it this way and i was like oh okay perfect yeah and i think that's one of the things is you go out on the internet and you start to try and copy somebody else's personal statement and you know they all start off with as i slid on the floor it's like oh no no don't and i think what happens is that you just get a lot of things that look very derivative, which, I mean, everything is probably very derivative, but it doesn't, it's not derivative in a way that's like true to yourself. When you go to that interview and you think about, this person just read my personal statement and now they're having a conversation with me, are they all of a sudden gonna go, who the heck is this person? Like I read wrong this personal person. statement <laughs> and this is the wrong person. Like I do not have right. the right person in front of me, which is why I say like, you know, in my interviews, I'm very direct. I'm going to just be very open about stuff. So my personal statement writes that way. If that's not right. how you write or talk or interact with the world, don't write that personal statement. It's not for you. Right. You know, if you're kind of coming at it from a very creative perspective and that's who you are, that's awesome. Because then when you have that interview and they start asking about that, that's just going to be how you talk about it because it's who you are rather than trying to put on a facade. And I know that sounds kind of weird. Like, obviously, we still have to practice. But at the same time, there's that old cliche of, you know, be yourself, which I think is true because a lot of people right. come off as stilted or weird because they're trying to be something that they think somebody else wants. Be yourself, unless if you like pineapple on pizza. Huh, just kidding. We don't shame people on the podcast for totally valid cravings and taste in food, nor do we use it as some sort of character piece that defines us because... Yeah, but I guess it's always that fine line of like, be yourself, but also like grow as a person. Definitely. Yeah, and I think kind of to sum it up in just a, like a, a phrase that's kind of cheesy, but it's sort of be yourself, but play the game, right? Like we're playing an yeah. admissions game be yourself, but also have some respect for the game that you're playing and recognize that there are gonna be some elements of yourself that you shouldn't share. And I think that's in some ways a problem with medicine. Um, like maybe don't talk about the fact that you have depression. I think that's awful that that hurts yeah. your chances. But at the same time, I think that people with depression can do just fine as physicians and they can do well in that environment and so play the game as well and understand that maybe that isn't something that you can talk about when you're being admitted. And if that's something you really, really wanna talk about, cool, please do, but do it after you're accepted because right. it's a game, right? It's a game right. that we're playing too. And I think you just have to have some appreciation for the game as well. And that's a very sad thing is that, I guess in STEM yeah. is that any mental health or emotional things are very like taboo to speak of it automatically right. jeopardizes your chances of success or of acceptance and i think that expedites the problems to not talk about mental health worsens mental health problems absolutely and i completely agree and i think that that's super super important that we have time and space and the ability to have space for that and making sure that schools are actually addressing that because it's a huge issue um and, and and that's the sort of thing is like recognizing the limits of the system and then appreciating that sometimes we have to conform to the system if we want to eventually change it. Right. Um, 
because it's really hard to change a system when you don't have any power. And unfortunately, if you don't conform to the system, you're probably not going to get any power within the system. A, a program that I'm thinking about that was talking about how they're advocating for changing the clinical rotations at the school to pass fail, because there's a lot of research coming out that it's biased both in gender and minority. But think about that, right? Like if you cannot get into the school, you can't make that change. Right. And so I hate telling my students to avoid certain things, especially when it seems really central to their sort of journey. But at the same time, I feel like I'm doing a disservice to them if I say, yeah, talk about it, because it just hinders right. your ability to get into that field. And ultimately, though, think about it, right? The people that get in now are going to start to be the people on the admissions committees who are going to start to shape who we bring in and setting some of those new norms about what we what we see as acceptable in medicine and what we can and can't talk about um, makes me think of a podcast that I really like called The Nocturnist, and they just share, it's just stories. It's just stories in medicine, oh. and this person um, brings people on and does interviews with people who share these stories, and you know, if that person didn't get into medicine because they talked about their own mental health struggles, what a, what a loss, what a loss wow. to the field because it's such a beautiful exploration, I think it starts to change the narrative. So first of all, I decided to listen to the Nocturnus podcast after the episode, and man, Dr. Emily Silverman, hosted the Nocturnus podcast, is so much better at asking questions than I am. But it's all good in the hood, baby. A role model to aspire to, nothing to beat myself up over. Anyway, Chris and I are talking about some heavy-handed topics, and so, it might be best if I substantiate our opinions with some research. I found a research article titled, White Coat, Mood Indigo depression in medical school by julie m rosenthal and dr susan oki md in the article it states that a greater amount of medical students will experience depression relative to their peers and there's a really cool audio clip of an interview so i'll just play a little of it it's actually sort of hard to tease out the depression from what is the normal life of a medical student and i think that's one of the the difficulties in recognizing one's own depression as a medical student. I mean, of course you're not sleeping. You're working long hours. You're getting up early. You're tired. You're not eating right, of course. You're either losing weight or you're not exercising, so you might be gaining weight. And I think a lot of people have trouble figuring out what is normal and what is depression. So much of what we're expected to do and the life that we're expected to lead isn't necessarily a healthy lifestyle in the first place. They're doing what they're excited about. They're seeing patients. But yet, sometimes it's not what they imagined it would be. One, one student said to us, you know, I, I was in the hospital and doing all this, and I thought, wow, this really isn't the life that I wanted, and I'm sort of stuck. I have all this debt. There's no other way out for me, and this isn't the way I want to practice medicine. And although this doesn't necessarily talk about how students deal with mental health issues before they apply for medical school, it does point out that mental health issues are definitely present within medical students. And if you choose to go further into the article as well as the interview audio, you'll find that there are, well, at least in my perspective, quite an alarming set of statistics. And it does seem a bit tangential to deep dive this specific topic for today, but don't worry because we'll most likely go over this topic in a later podcast episode. And since this is an educational podcast, I call fair use. 
By the way, I have no idea if that's how it works. Another article titled Mental Health Issues and Med School Applications by Dr. Kathleen Franco, MDMS, talks about how it would be best to address any previous mental health issues before going into medical school since it's just better for the long term and it allows for better access to psychiatrists and that there are plenty of resources available for students. That sounds all nice and dandy and yet medschoolhq.net states in their little Q&A titled, Will my medical history affect my chances at med school? That you don't have to say anything and you can generalize your mental health and physical health conditions, which seems like an implicit message stating that it might be best to keep it on the down low. So many perspectives and yet there doesn't seem to be a concrete answer. I guess we could potentially have an admission committee member be a part of the podcast one day in order to dispel some myths. That'd be pretty cool. It's inspiring and sad to know that there's a lot of area for growth. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that incentivizes us to keep pushing forward. Last question. Yeah. I know that you took the MCATs. It expired, right? And so you had to take it again to apply yeah. for medical school? Uh, so, some schools, yeah. So if you could, could you please explain that? Because that freaked me out. Yeah, so to put it in context, that was in 2018. So it's been a little bit, right? So it's been a little bit since I've taken my um, original MCAT. So every school is a little bit different. There's not a quote-unquote expiration date. Mm. Some schools will take MCATs that are older than others, and you have to just kind of check. So if you don't have access to what's called MSAR, which is like the medical school application resource, I think. Mm -hmm. I can't ever remember. The AMC has some acronyms that are very difficult to remember but if you look on there it'll just tell you um and so there weren't very many schools there were not very many schools that i couldn't have applied to with that score um it was only also expired quote unquote expired by a couple of months many other schools would have taken it mm. so it's one of those things where if you take a couple of years off you're probably still going to be able to use your test and you're probably still going to be able to apply i would say you know when you have to start worrying is when it's going to be like three plus years out from your exam date that's typically when you're going to start seeing that kind of cutoff come into play but it won't always be for all of the schools i ended up decide i, I chose to retake it i didn't necessarily have to uh, because the couple of schools that wouldn't take it were ones that I was I really cared about applying to and so that's why I chose to retake it but there were still plenty of schools that I could have applied to and probably would have been good for another year if I wanted to apply this cycle thank goodness for that clarification although I liked taking the MCATs I don't think my wallet could handle another one anyway to finish off the podcast do you have any words of advice for those currently on their journey? Connect with what you care about and your why. So when you're choosing to do an activity, really have a good reason for why you're choosing that activity. You'll often discover things you would have never thought about doing before and open up, I think, whole new avenues of being in the world that sometimes we shut ourselves off to by trying to be quote unquote optimal. And so that's what I would say is sort of connect with your why when you're choosing to do stuff in the world. In conclusion, we learned about the various demographic factors that could potentially be biasing our exams, but also our student bodies, policies, and healthcare. 
We talked about a very touchy, touchy topic, reverse discrimination, and the need for diversity referring to the tragic historical events of the Tuskegee syphilis study and Dr. Susan Moore. We discussed strategies on how to better yourself at CARS. We learned the importance of being genuine throughout the application process, the uneasy state of addressing mental health, and the overall stigma surrounding it throughout the medical field. And we learned to not judge people on their preferences of pizza. Thank you all for tuning in. If you enjoyed the podcast, hit the like button, comment, subscribe, and rate. It really helps. If you didn't enjoy the podcast or you just feel like some constructive feedback is warranted, please also comment below. Anyway, this is the Asclepius Podcast with your host, Gripethy U. And the next episode will be a special episode talking about the first child lung transplant at Hassenfeld Children's Hospital. Excited for that one. Peace. Also, let's be real. I don't personally like pineapple on my pizza. Are you doing the podcast? I am doing the podcast. <laughs>